welcome to the Coffee, Murder, and Mystery Halloween special. Ooh, spooky. I'm Melissa. I'm Mandy. This episode is a trick and a treat because we are covering fictional characters. For all the horror fans out there, today we are covering the lives of Frederick Charles Kruger, Jason Voorhees, Jedediah Sawyer, and Michael Myers. Frederick Charles Kruger was born in May of 1942 to Amanda Kruger. Amanda was a nun who worked in a mental hospital. She was accidentally locked inside over the Christmas holiday and was raped by over 100 psychopaths when she became pregnant with Freddie. Freddie was raised by an alcoholic foster parent named Mr. Underwood. I always love that name and things. Like anything that starts with under is super creepy, don't you think, Mandy? It Mr. does. Mr. Underhill, Mr. Underwood. Well, because it, ma- it reminds me of the word undertaker. Oh, that must be it. Maybe. You're right. Yeah. It's like a psychological thing. Freddie was regularly beaten by Mr. Underwood and mocked at school. During his childhood, Freddie would kill animals and cut himself with a razor for pleasure. This led to the murder of Mr. Underwood with the same razor. As an adult, Freddie lived in Springwood, Ohio, and worked at a power plant. He lived with his wife, Loretta, and his daughter, Catherine. His life seemed normal at first glance, but in secret, he hid the dark underbelly of his personality. He murdered and molested many local children in his workplace boiler room. He tortured them with a homemade glove that he fashioned with fish knives as fingers. He killed for vengeance for the hell that Springwood had inflicted upon him. The media dubbed him as the Springwood Slasher. One day, Loretta discovered a secret room in the basement of their house. It contained newspaper clippings of the victims and the tools that Freddie used to murder children. She was horrified and confronted him. At that time, she concluded that he was the famous Springwood Slasher. She promised not to tell anyone, but Freddie didn't believe her. He strangled his wife in front of his six-year-old daughter. He told Catherine that it was because she was snooping into Daddy's special work. Catherine promised her father she wouldn't tell, but she did, leading to Freddie's capture. In 1966, Freddie was arrested for the murders of the missing children, and Catherine was put into foster care, later adopted by the Burrow family. To protect her, her records were sealed, and she was moved away from Springwood, Ohio. In 1968, Freddie was put on trial, but was released because someone didn't sign the search warrant in the right place. The parents of the children tracked him down. He was in a boiler room where he took his victims. The parents poured gas into the room and set him on fire. Freddie was just 26 years old when the parents took vengeance upon him and murdered him. I've seen these movies, Melissa, like especially the first uh, Nightmare on Elm Street several, several times, but it never really clicked with me that Freddie was so young when he died. I didn't know that. He seems much older, definitely, in the movies. Yeah, I thought so, too. I also didn't realize the things that they put in there about his mother. And honestly, if you follow the timeline of this, it really seems 
like a lot of things that we do read that are actually true. It does. You know, it's really surprising the backstory that they have that's really kind of just true to a lot of murderers. It is. And the fact that they didn't sign the search warrant in the correct place. I feel like there's a lot of other cases that you've covered previously or that we've heard on other podcasts where people get released just for one little mistake. Right. This definitely shows you what can happen from just one little mistake. It is totally true to real world. As the building burnt, Freddie was approached by dream demons to continue his killing spree. He was allowed to roam the dream world where any damage he inflicted would cause death in the physical world. As a spirit, he took revenge on the kids of the parents that killed him. Freddie got his power from his victims. They ran from him, but running from their fears gave him life. Freddie's only weakness after death was being dragged into the real world. When he was in the dream world, he had no weaknesses. His greatest disadvantage was he could not kill you unless you gave him enough fear to do so. In March of 1981, Tina Gray woke from a nightmare where she was attacked by a disfigured man wearing a blade-fixed glove in a boiler room. Her mother noticed four slashes on her nightgown. The next morning, she confided in her best friend, Nancy Thompson, and Nancy's boyfriend, Glenn Lance. They stayed the night with Tina that night because her mother was out of town. Tina's boyfriend, Rod Lane, came over and Tina and Rod went to bed. Rod was awakened by Tina thrashing and watched as she was dragged and slashed by an unseen force. Nancy and Glenn ran to the bedroom to find Tina bloodied and dead. I remember the first time that I saw this movie and I saw her being dragged around, like up the wall and on the ceiling. That was really scary. It is a really terrifying scene. Yeah. I mean, I was young, you know, and it stuck with me that that scene and he was scared. How do you fight back something that you can't see? The next day, Rod was arrested by Nancy's father, Don Thompson, despite his claims of innocence. Nancy went to school and fell asleep in class and dreamt of a man chasing her into the boiler room. She burnt her arm on a pipe and was startled awake. Nancy was surprised to find that she had an actual burn mark on her arm. Nancy left school and went to the police station to see Rod. Rod told Nancy what happened to Tina along with his own recent nightmares. Nancy believed this man was who was responsible for Tina's death. When Nancy got home, she fell asleep in the bathtub and nearly drowned. She became dependent on caffeine to stay awake. She invited Glenn to come over and watch her as she slept. In her dreams, she saw the man prepared to kill Rod in his cell. When her alarm went off, she ran back to the jail and checked on Rod, but it was too late. He was hanging from his bedsheets. It was listed as suicide, but Nancy knew the truth. The bathtub scene is another scene I will never forget. When she was laying in the bathtub, kind of falling asleep, and then do you remember where the gloved hand kind of comes up between her legs? Oh, yes. Uh It's so terrifying. And then she got drugged underneath, and like all of a sudden the bathtub was deep. 
That was creepy. Maybe because I love baths so much. It was terrifying. Nancy's parents became concerned for her. She would not sleep, so her parents made her go to a sleep clinic. At the clinic, while dreaming, Nancy grabbed the man in her dream's hat. When she woke up, the hat was in her hands. Inside the hat was a tag with the name Freddy Krueger written on it. Nancy's mom confessed to her the truth about Freddy, how her and the other parents on Elm Street burned him alive, seeking vigilante justice. Nancy realized that Freddy was a vengeful spirit and called Glenn to warn him. Glenn's father would not let Nancy talk to him. Glenn fell asleep and was killed by Freddy. Nancy was the only one of her friends left and decided to take matters into her own hands. She rigged booby traps around the house so she could grab Freddy out of the dream and bring him into the real world. Nancy figured out that Freddy is powered by his victim's fear, and she calmly turned her back on him. He evaporated as he tried lunging for her. The next day, Nancy woke up, and her friends were alive again. As they drove down the street, they saw little girls playing jump rope and singing. Ooh, do you remember the song, Melissa? Ooh, I do. Didn't it start with, like, it's like one, two... Freddy's coming for you. Three, four, better lock your door. Five, six, grab your crucifix. Seven, eight, gonna stay up late. Nine, ten, never sleep again. I loved that song. I still do (laughs) like it. We didn't sing it because we didn't want to scare you guys away. (laughs) Now it's Mandy's turn to entertain you guys with the story of Jedediah Sawyer, a.k.a. Leatherface. Jedediah Sawyer, also known as Leatherface, was born in 1938 and resided in Newt, Texas with his brothers Nubbins, Drayton, and Chop Top, and his grandpa. Those are some great names. They are some great names for great family. The home also included his dead grandma and dead great-grandma and several other family members some of which were not blood-related, but adopted into the family. Can you imagine the family reunions? (laughs) (laughs) Leatherface suffered from neurodegeneration and was diagnosed at age 12. Leatherface's name comes from the human skin mask he always wore, which hid his deformed face. Some believe that Leatherface wasn't born evil. Nature versus nurture made him who he was. His signature weapon was a chainsaw, but he was never afraid to use other tools such as cleavers and hammers to kill his victims. He murdered out of fear, not malice, and to him masks were not just creepy accessories, but a way to express himself. Masks determine his personality. Leatherface's inbred family encouraged him to engage in murder and cannibalism. He was a little afraid of his family, but he did what they told him. They controlled and manipulated him. In reality, Leatherface was a big baby who killed in self-defense because he felt threatened and fearful of new people that came into his home. Presumably, Leatherface worked as a butcher at the meat processing plant alongside his brother. 
Leatherface's grandpa worked there, and his family had always been in the meat business. One of their specialty meats is head cheese. Mmm. I wonder what's in that, Melissa. Uh, I don't know. Gross. The family's motto is to never skimp on the meat. (laughs) (laughs) Once the company transitioned to automation, they were all out of a job. Poor, extremely disenfranchised, and possessing no skills besides cutting up cattle, the Sawyers can only afford to eat what they kill. His family used the bones of people they have murdered along with animal bones to decorate the inside of their house. That's like Kathy Knight. Do you remember? I mean, she didn't decorate with bones, but like she had like pitchforks on her ceiling and rakes. Yeah. Totally creepy. Oh, yeah. Maybe they got their idea from her. They barbecued and made chili with the flesh of their victims. Leatherface's brother, Drayton, was a chef and sold his meats at a gas station. He was even known to enter meat contests and win. That's why you never buy gas station meat. You never buy gas station meat. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) That's exactly why right there. On August 18th, 1973, Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother Franklin went out with their friends. They were looking for their grandpa's supposedly vandalized grave. As they headed through the back roads of Texas, they encountered Nubbins hitchhiking. He slashed both himself and Franklin with a straight razor. The others managed to force the hitchhiker from the car. They are forced to stop and look for help because they were low on gas. They soon found a dilapidated old home. What they didn't realize is that the house they found was the Sawyer house. Not long after they arrived, they realized that the hitchhiker they had encountered earlier lived here. One at a time, the teens were killed by Leatherface in unspeakable ways. Sally found herself to be the only survivor. The Sawyers tied her to a chair and forced her to sit at the table with their clan. Grandpa Sawyer drank Sally's blood and she blacked out. Do you remember that part from the movie? I don't. I haven't seen that movie in a really long time. It's disturbing. Like, it's it's obviously an old movie. And, you know, the effects aren't, like, today, but it it's disturbing. Like, it, it's cringy. Sometimes I feel the older movies are even, like, a little bit more disturbing. They are. I agree. When she woke up, the cannibals decided it was time to kill her. The family tried to give Grandpa the honors of killing Sally with a hammer, but he was too old and feeble to complete the act. Sally was beaten by the family as she screamed and cried for help. She tried reasoning with the family to no avail. A grenade was accidentally set off by Drayton and exploded next to Grandpa. While the family tended to Grandpa, Sally made her escape by jumping through a window. She ran to the road and a truck driver tried to help her. He soon realized the danger Sally was in and got out of the cab. Sally continued to run with Leatherface close on her heels. The trucker threw a wrench at Leatherface and caused him to fall and cut his own leg with a chainsaw. Sally kept running and jumped in the back of someone's pickup truck to get away. The driver ran down the road and was never seen or heard from again. Go Sally. Go Sally. Poor driver. He's probably in gas station meat. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. Gas station meat. Never eat gas station meat. Maybe the irony of it is it could be like a truck stop gas station meat where Ooh. other truckers will eat him. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Sad. Terrible. Sad ending. Now I'm going to pass it over to Melissa for Jason Voorhees. Jason Voorhees was born prematurely on June 13, 1946, to Pamela and Elias Voorhees in the state of New Jersey. Jason was born with severe facial deformities and hydrocephalus, which is a disease that causes the buildup of fluid in the brain. This fluid put extra pressure on his brain and caused brain damage. It also caused his head to be enlarged, headaches, impaired vision, cognitive difficulties, loss of coordination, and incontinence. Pamela, fearing the ridicule her son would get from the outside world, took care of Jason on her own. She even homeschooled him. Because of this, the only contact he ever had with another human was his mother. In 1957, when Jason was just nine years old, his mother got a job at Camp Crystal Lake as a cook. Since she had no one to babysit Jason, she had to bring him with her to work. Established in 1935, Camp Crystal Lake was owned and operated by the Christie family. The deformed, mentally disabled boy was bullied and picked on by the other children and was thrown into the lake. But Jason was not able to swim. The camp counselors on duty did not notice him struggling because they were busy letting their hormones take over. They had slipped away to have sex in the woods and Jason presumably drowned. Hoping to avoid a lawsuit, the camp closed for the rest of the year for investigation. Although Jason's body was never recovered, authorities determined his death was an accident. In 1958, the camp was reopened and Pamela was rehired. The Christies also rehired Barry Jackson and Claudette Hayes, who were the two counselors that were having sex when Jason drowned. Obviously, Pamela was outraged and still racked with grief over her son's death. One night, when Barry and Christie were getting ready to have sex, Pamela took revenge and murdered the two counselors. The Christies decided to shut down the camp indefinitely, and Pamela was never suspected. The police ruled the murders as unsolved. I know this is fictional, but why in the world would the Christies rehire the two counselors (laughs) that let the child drown? Right. Hopefully they wouldn't. Really, really bad business decision. It was. Throughout the 1960s, there were multiple attempts to reopen Camp Crystal Lake, but none succeeded. There were fires and even poisoned water. No one knew who was responsible, but Pamela was the culprit. In her sick mind, she had convinced herself that the murders of Barry and Claudette was not vengeance served. She wanted to make sure that no other child suffered the same fate. She kept a watch on the place to make sure that it stayed abandoned. She lived nearby. The locals nicknamed it Camp Blood and thought that the land was cursed or jinxed. Sometime in the 1970s, 
the Christies passed away. In 1979, Steve Christie, the son of the original owners, reopened Camp Crystal Lake. He hired some counselors, and they began to work on getting the camp ready for the kids to arrive. This time, Pamela was no longer happy with just sabotaging the attempts at opening the camp. This time, she was out for blood and stalked and killed Steve and all but one of the new counselors who was named Alice. In self-defense, Alice took a machete and chopped off Pamela's head. I remember watching this for the first time at the end of the movie being surprised that the killer was a woman. So the first time I watched it, I, I don't know how I didn't realize, but I I don't know if I just forgot or what, but I didn't actually realize that his mother was the killer until probably years later. I mean, I'm sure I was young the first time I saw it, but I was surprised then to find that his mom was the killer. You know, the first one that I actually saw, I started with Friday the 13th Part 4, so I didn't watch them in order, so I guess the first time I saw this, I didn't know that either, right? I just always thought Jason was the killer, so it was surprising to to see her being right. the killer. You know, and I don't know that I watched the first one first either, because I feel like, you know, this was like back when like we used to have cable. I don't have cable anymore, but, you know, and I feel like things like that used to come on like TBS and... They did later on. Yep. Yeah, and I, so I would just watch them yeah. randomly. So I don't know that th- I watched the first one the first time I yeah. watched it either. See, I'm so old that we watched it on VHS. We would go to the video store and and go to the horror section and pick out all of our movies for the weekend. Those were fun days. It was fun days. Yeah, I miss those days. You had to do work to actually like do things. Things didn't just appear on your TV. Yeah, and if you didn't rewind it, you got... A fine. Oh. Remember the sticker? (laughs) Be kind, please rewind. (laughs) Unbeknownst to anyone, Jason witnessed his mother's decapitation. It is unclear if Jason had been alive this whole time, living in the woods, feeding off plants, bugs, and animals. Or if he really did drown and came back to life to avenge his mother's death. Jason grew to be an enormous, deformed, and uneducated person who never spoke a word. After killing Pamela, Alice, who was tired and mentally exhausted, climbed into a canoe and took it out on the lake. Jason came up from behind and pulled her into the lake. I remember this being the biggest jump scare of the movie, like more than... The murder and the blood and the gore just because it was like such a calm and peaceful time and you thought it was over. And right, it was just like that ending yeah, jump scare. Like, yeah. I think that was a really big thing in horror movies at that time. They loved to get like one, one more last in thing, there. Just when you thought it was safe. Yeah, I loved it. Alice survived Jason's attack that time. She was taken to the hospital and asked the police officer about the boy. They thought that she was hallucinating. They had not seen the boy. Later, Jason found Alice and killed her. He returned to the shack in the woods where he lived with his shrine he set up, using his mother's decomposing head as a centerpiece. Jason followed his mother's legacy, and every time someone tried to open Camp Crystal Lake 
or wandered onto the land, he would kill them. In the beginning of Jason's murderous spree, he wore his sack with eye holes over his head to hide his deformities. Later, he took a hockey mask from one of his victims and used that to cover his face. Jason's favorite killing tool is a machete, but he has also used an axe, chainsaw, dagger, spear gun, flare gun, baseball bat, branch, fire iron, hacksaw, ice pick, knife, pitchfork, surgical tool, fence post, and his bare hands. The only human aspect that Jason has ever exhibited is his love and attachment to his mother. Even after her death, he hears her voice telling him to kill people, and he listens. She is the only person he has ever known that showed him love. Although Jason's intelligence is lacking, he has an almost animal-like intelligence. Jason's murderous ways were spawned from the abuse he received as a child, and he does not see other people as humans, and he cannot relate to them. We know that Jason is someone to fear, but just as equally, someone to pity. So this reminds me of a lot of the other stories we've read about the trouble with your mother. Like, how that could produce a serial killer. Right, and they really really put that in this story, and they also really stuck that in the Norman Bates story. Exactly. Yeah, so... But I I do kind of feel sorry for Jason. I think I've always been on his side and rooted for him a little bit, you know, even though he's the bad guy. As Mandy knows, and Mandy's a huge horror movie fan, as Mandy knows, my son is also a big supporter of Jason. He loves Jason. He's 10 years old. And it's funny because as I'm reading, like, all these weapons, my son has a little Jason figure Mm -hmm. and... You know, he has, you know, so many weapons, all these weapons, like, that I listed off. And I just, I'm picturing this little Jason figure and all these little tiny weapons. One time I vacuumed one up and he cried so hard. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now I'm going to turn it over to Mandy so she can tell you guys about Michael Myers. And I'm going to tell you guys a secret. Mandy's favorite murderer is Michael Myers. (laughs) Melissa, you're not supposed to tell. (laughs) She's right, though. Michael is is my favorite. Um, I I don't know why, really. He's he's tall and strong, and I think he's pretty intelligent compared to the other ones on our list. He definitely is. Yeah. He's more human too. Yes. I mean, Leatherface was human, but he did he didn't really act right. like a human. He wasn't really like yeah, kind like a normal animal. yeah. yeah. All right, let's go. Michael Audrey Myers was born on October 19, 1957, to Donald and Edith Myers. He had two sisters. The eldest was Judith Myers, who he lived with along with his parents. His younger sister was Cynthia. The family resided in a two-story house on 45 Lumpkin Lane in the small suburban town of Haddonfield, Illinois. I love Lumpkin Lane. Like, do you think they did that because it's supposed to sound like pumpkin? Maybe. You know, I never... Halloween. I never caught the name of the street watching the movies, ever. So when I did the research on this, I did find that kind of funny. It was a funny word. By 1963, when Michael was just six years old, 
He claimed to have suffered from strange, inexplicable nightmares and heard a voice in his head that would tell him to do things. The voices, tell me to say I hate people, said Michael. On Halloween night in 1963, Michael committed murder for the first time. His mom and dad had went out for the evening, and his older sister Judith was supposed to be babysitting. Judith paid more attention to the intimate moment she was having with her boyfriend Danny than she did Michael. When Danny left, Michael donned a clown costume, carefully selected a butcher knife from the kitchen drawer, and quietly crept upstairs into Judith's bedroom and stabbed her to death. I wonder if this is like most people in the world, like where their fear of clowns comes from. Yeah, you know, there. I heard a story the other day that like back in the like 50s, clowns weren't considered scary at all. Like, really? It's... It's as time has passed that they've become scary to us. Mm. I think they're scary. He calmly walked back downstairs and into the front yard where he patiently waited for his parents and the police to take him. After Michael killed his older sister Judith, his parents put Cynthia, who was only two at the time, up for adoption. Her new family named her Lori Strode. Michael spent the next 15 years as a patient in Smith's Grove Sanitarium. His doctor was Sam Loomis. Michael never spoke a word during his stay there. Dr. Loomis once stated that Michael was the most dangerous patient he had ever observed. He believed that Michael's inner life is cruel and dark beyond the realm of normal child psychology. Loomis said, I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. I always liked that, that quote in the movie. I thought it was like, right to the point, and just for it to have an adult say that about a child. And I also didn't think about it, but when he's saying the blank, pale, emotionless face, that's, like, the mask that he chose. Oh, it is. I never thought of that before. I never put that connection together. That is a super good point. Yeah. On October 30th, 1978, Michael carved the word sister on the door of his room at Smith's Grove before breaking out. He also released the other patients, most likely to cause confusion and chaos. At that time, Dr. Loomis and nurse Marion Chambers were arriving at the facility to transfer Michael for his court hearing. It was raining hard when they pulled up and he noticed all patients roaming around outside. When Loomis got out of the car to investigate, Michael attacked the nurse and sped away with their station wagon. As Michael drove across Illinois, he stopped to murder a truck driver and stole his work overalls. The next day, Michael arrived at his childhood home in Haddonfield. Oh my god, station wagons. Remember station wagons? I do remember station wagons. And then the spot in the back, did did people call it the dust seat? 
I've never heard it called that. I'm sure somebody did. I'm going to actually tell you guys all a secret. Nobody can tell Jeff because I've never told him this specifically. My first car was a station wagon. My uncle sold it to me for $75. (laughs) I used to pack so many people in the back of that thing. Anyway. That's funny. (laughs) On Halloween day, Lori Strode dropped off a key at the Myers house, which was now abandoned. Her father was a realtor and had asked her to do this. Michael immediately saw and recognized her as his sister. Which I think it's important right here to realize that she doesn't know. She was adopted at two years old, so she has no idea that her brother was a psycho killer. Right. Michael proceeded to stalk her and her friends, Annie and Linda, throughout the day. Michael kept himself busy by stealing his sister Judith's headstone from the cemetery, and he broke into a hardware store to steal knives, rope, and a Halloween mask. Meanwhile, Dr. Loomis had followed Michael to Haddonfield and warned the town sheriff of the danger. That Halloween night, Lori and Annie were babysitting across the street from each other. Michael murdered Annie first in her car. Later, Linda and her boyfriend Bob arrived and were also murdered by Michael. Lori got suspicious and went across the street to investigate and found her dead friends. Michael moved towards his sister and stabbed her arm. Lori ran back across the street to the house where she was babysitting. Michael followed and got into the house. Lori grabbed a knitting needle and stabbed him. She also cut him with his own knife. I feel like knitting needles were, like, the most convenient weapon of, like, between the 50s and the 70s. They were, like, always in the living room. That's true. She was very resourceful to find that right there. So dangerous. Yeah. And no one was suspected as a weapon. Yeah. Lori ran upstairs where the kids were, who were locked in a room for safety. Lori hid in a closet by herself. Michael stabbed through the closet to get to Lori. Dr. Loomis showed up and shot Michael six times, and Michael fell off the balcony. When Loomis leaned over the railing, Michael was gone. This is my another favorite line from the movie. When a teary-eyed Lori asks, Was that the boogeyman? To which Loomis responds, As a matter of fact, it was. Ooh, that gave me chills. Did it? Yeah. You know, this movie, especially a couple of my favorite parts were when Lori went over to the house to check on her friends and, you know, Michael had had killed them and how they just kind of kept dropping out of everywhere. Like, she would open the closet and somebody was there. It was like he had set up this whole, you know, haunted house or, or trap for her to find them. And then before that, when he killed Bob, he killed him and then he kind of took his hand and he held him up against the wall. And then Michael turned his head and looked at him. And I I liked that part. It was like he was studying a piece of art or like admiring what he did. There was something really creepy about just the way he turned his head. I think... And I do, I do know what you're talking about. Like, and I think that Michael Myers, when he turns his head, it's often creepy. It is. I don't know if it's just because, like, he's so large or if it's because of the mask, so it kind of looks like... Just expressionless and void of any emotion. 
at all. Right, but I think that this is something even more. Like, you can see, like, the mask move, kind of, but oh, not. Oh, right, you can see his neck. It almost looks like, yeah, it almost looks like it's, um, like, his head's not attached or something. Yeah. You know, it's just, like, a really extra creepiness to that. Yeah. But this is my all-time favorite scary movie. I watch it every year. Like, tradition. That's just what we do. So, yeah. As you guys can tell, Michael is my favorite. I love horror movies. Mandy loves horror movies. I really enjoy them, but sadly, it does seem like often these killers are based on true events or like multiple true events. Like, I think some of these stories were kind of put together and created, you know, off of multiple serial killers. I did find that Freddy Krueger, though, is not. But the name Freddy Krueger was actually taken from the bully, the kid that bullied Wes Craven when he was young. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Imagine, like, being an adult now and just, like, knowing, like, being the adult Freddy Krueger <laughs> that Wes Craven made this movie about you. Bullies beware. I think that's the ultimate comeback. Yes. Like, the underdog will grow up and make a movie about you and you will forever have the name of a psychopath. That's why you don't bully people. Jason apparently was inspired by a homeless alcoholic derelict that Tom Savini knew growing up. That's interesting. I had no idea. I wonder if that's where he got his inspiration for doing all of the the special effects makeup that he does. Ooh, maybe. Yeah, I was like, he saw like when he was younger, he got he got to see like, all that in real life. Yeah, noticed creepy things. and So we all know that, well, we probably, probably if you're listening to this, you know that Ed Gein was an inspiration for multiple movies and including the, tex- the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is totally sad and terrible. It is sad and terrible. But, but I do enjoy the movie. I can see that completely. Michael Myers was inspired by some urban legends but also by real-life serial killers Stanley Steers and Ed Kemper. Oh, wow. I didn't know that either. Don't let it ruin it for you, Mandy. Still enjoy it. (laughs) Damn it, Ed Kemper. Our last fact that we have today is the kill counts. I was a little bit surprised about this, Melissa, so let's see what you think. Coming in fourth place is... Leatherface, his kill count was 31. Third place goes to Freddy Krueger, who killed 48 people. Second place goes to Michael Myers, with a kill count of 128. Wow. And the first place grand prize goes to Jason Voorhees, with a kill count of 170. Wow. Yeah. First of all, I didn't think that there was that big of a gap. Like, Freddy, wow. I, I just can't imagine it being that low. I was a little bit surprised, too. Um, I actually took that information. I got it from an article dated, um, I want to say it was July or August of 2020. So it's recent information. Who knows how accurate it is. I've never actually watched the movies and counted. But I was actually really surprised that Leatherface and Freddy didn't have more. And we did want to also give a little 
disclaimer on this episode, you know, there's lots of information out there, lots of information on these killers. It changes throughout the movies. You know, there's lots of conflicting information. Mandy researched and built this episode based upon what she found and the information that she thought was most accurate to the killers. We didn't want to make any horror fans mad, any horror nerds, nobody, nobody come at us. Right. There was a lot of information for different movies. And then, especially with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they redid it and they changed the names of the family. Like, everything was different. So, we just kind of took the information that we could find, compiled it, just to make fun little stories. So, we hope you guys like it. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. I know I really enjoyed it, and I wanted to give a huge thank you to Mandy for putting it together. Happy Halloween. Stay safe. Evil people are everywhere. Even on your TV. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Coffee, Murder, and Mystery. Mm -hmm.